0: Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today we have on Justin Wilford, two-time PhD. You'll find out more about that in the episode today. Uh, I met him through our most recent fit for service event that happened in Sedona, and um, he sent me an email a couple of weeks after the event where he shared with me his one of the PhDs he got was writing a dissertation about the rise and the impact of megachurches and how he believes that because of what suburban communities have done to our psychologies, uh, the need that he sees that we have for a secular type of megachurch. And I thought that that was such a fascinating idea. And so I was like, let's talk. And then, after doing a little bit more research, I found out that he also started a nonprofit for the families who have children that have cancer because uh, his son, at the age of four, got a rare and aggressive type of brain tumor. I believe I'm getting that right. And he saw how the outcare patient process was not helping his son and so he used everything that he had learned in school to help families and he's helped over 20,000 families and I was like who is this person well you're gonna get to meet him on the podcast today something that is interesting is when I get excited I stutter and I almost never stutter on the podcast but today's podcast was one of the times where I I don't know if you guys notice it, but I definitely notice it because the experience of a stutter for me is interesting. It's that I can feel it coming, and it's almost like there's like a seizure happening in my mouth that keeps me from being able to say what I want to say. In this podcast, it was really strong around the end, and it's it's an interesting feeling. Like, I can feel like a child. Like I'm unable to play with my friends is really actually how it feels when I feel that it's strong in a conversation. And there's also this like hint of shame because I know that I can switch out of it, but I don't quite know exactly how. Like there's a cadence that I'm talking now where I can tell that I'm not going to stutter. I can feel it but i get into a rhythm in conversations at times where i know i'm going to stutter and it's it's so interesting because i can feel that it's psychosomatic because there are times when it's completely gone so it's not some physiological thing and there's something beautifully humbling about it too like I will never be able to get too big for my britches if I stutter every so often. So it's very interesting um like internal regulating function. Cuz I don't know if you guys can tell but I have a huge ego in the sense of I have a pretty big sense of audacity of what it feels like I'm capable of speaking about and creating and doing there's something cosmically interesting about the stutter that feels like um yeah it's it's still kind of a mystery to me and i will sometimes have bouts in my life where for months i don't stutter and then i'll have bouts where it's particularly in the way and i just felt call to share that with everyone you know like one of the things that i make it a point of emphasis to make clear at any fit for service event is whenever i feel anyone idolizing me i i'm quick to point out there's this idea in Jungian psychology called the golden shadow and the golden shadow are The higher aspects of ourselves that, because of our trauma and self worth and our beliefs about ourselves, we can't even dare to believe that we could be that. So we project that onto other people and then we idolize or admire those people. And it creates this weird type of cage that we put ourselves in where we think that person is like, otherworldly or that person's not human. You'll know that you're in the grip of your golden shadow if you believe that about a human. We are all siblings. And uh anything that you see in another that you worship almost or that you believe is other humanly, that's a part of you trying to make contact with you. Almost it's like God is a kitten at the door and you just have to open the door. But this is the type of cat that actually wants to hang out with you, but you have to open the door. And so the parts that you admire in other people are, you know, the cats that you're locking out that want to just come in and fucking cuddle with you. And every so often will bring you a dead mouse to say, I love you, you know? And in this weird way, I'm grateful that I struggle with the stutter in an interesting way. Because uh, it helps remind me not to uh, get too inflated. So that came up on the podcast today, and I thought it was cool. And you know, the reason it came up is because we got fucking excited. And I could actually tell that he, you guys probably won't be able to detect it. But maybe now that I'm calling it out, you will be. But as my stutter got kind of bad about two-thirds of the way through, he actually started to slur his s's a bit. And uh, it's it, it's weird how the human nervous system can attune to others. Like one of the things that I've noticed actually throughout my life is my friends who get really close to me when I start to stutter badly or strongly, because maybe badly is a judgment. Oh shit! Um, they will actually start to stammer over their words. It's really interesting, so <laughs> yeah, um, as always, I deeply appreciate you guys giving your attention to the podcast because there's so much going on in the world, and I really appreciate all the love that um you guys send on social media and in emails, and I almost never respond because if I started to, it would be ridiculous, but I read everything, so. For everyone who's been sending love about the podcast, I deeply appreciate it. And as always, if you want to support the podcast, go check out my courses online. I got one on journaling and another on how to make a digital journal. That is uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty dope, if I do say so myself. Um, and then also, if you want to stay in touch, sign up for my newsletter, which I haven't wrote in about six weeks, I know. And I plan on writing the next one before the end of the year and to get back up on that train. I'm currently looking out at my house that I'm about to move out of tomorrow. This is the house that I've lived in for the last two and a half years. I'm moving in with my fiance and starting that next chapter of my life. I've got a bunch of things ready to be packed for tomorrow. And this is really a day between worlds it's pretty cool and so it was cool to do the podcast in our living room while our house is in chaos. Graham has been a trooper you know he moved in his girlfriend today who was replacing me you know me and Graham are finally breaking up and in between that move he just fucking set up a podcast studio in the middle of the goddamn living room and we do this podcast I really love that I get to do it. And I appreciate you guys for listening. So without further ado, the myths that make us. Here we go. Justin, thank you for coming on the podcast. We literally had to stop ourselves from talking without the mics going because we had just been going for like 15 minutes. And uh, I'm really excited to do a podcast with you today because you, you and I met at the most recent Fit First service Summit in Sedona. And like, it was a really cool moment, but you know, I have so many awesome moments one on one. But then you sent me an email and you started talking about um, the research that you did when you were getting your first PhD, because you have two PhDs and you know me. If I see two PhDs in an email, I'm like, what the fuck's going on here? And that your first dissertation, you were looking at the like cultural history of megachurches and then also making a academically supported argument that like non-religious megachurches as a foundation stone in a community would be incredibly helpful to the massive mental health epidemic that we have going on. And then I kept reading your email and then I saw that you have a fucking nonprofit where you help families who have children who are going through cancer and i was like who the fuck is this guy and uh we set up a podcast and because i have trauma with checking my inbox i didn't respond back to you for like three weeks and then you hit me up and you're like hey i'm in austin and so we're making it happen and i'm glad that we are because i can feel incredible resonance and so I would love for you to introduce yourself in a way where it provides
1: some context around what I just offered, and then we're just going to fucking get into it. Oh, my God. Thank you uh, for that introduction. Um, I'll just say when I met you at Fit for Service, so I, I, uh, I've listened to your podcast for a while. And uh, so when I was there, I was like, I have to say hi and just tell them how much I, I love his work, uh, but it was after the breathwork session. I was in the afternoon one, right. which, from what I understand, was super crazy. Yeah. And it was—I mean, compared to the other one. So, um, so I was in uh, still just coming off of that experience, and I was like, I just, I just need to go say thank you. And um, yeah, and so we just met briefly there, and then when ah. Uh, after that, on my journey home, I was just thinking about what a powerful event fit for service was in the context—not just of you know bringing together really interesting, awesome people to come together and do this great work, but like it's part of something bigger. Like it's part of I think a bigger cultural movement that isn't just um, fun and enlivening and life-affirming. But I think it's part of like a larger historical movement. Like I think we're at a time where things like Fit for Service are going to evolve into something that will be much bigger. And you alluded to it. So I've had this idea around the secular megachurch um, since my first dissertation. And after Fit for Service, I really started to think harder about it. And so I sent you an email and here we are. So there's so many threads that
0: we could go down, but I want to kind of track the arc of your life briefly that brought you to a point where you were like, you know what, I'm going to get two PhDs. And what I mean by that is it's a very specific type of person who chooses or who is honestly even capable of choosing that route, but then who also chooses that route and then also goes down that route. And so I'm curious if you kind of give a brief, history to the depth that feels comfortable. Like what was your early life like that you think kind of like set you on the arc to go do what you
1: did? Yeah. I've, I've talked about this, um, with friends that remember from a young age, feeling like, like a little different than my family. Like it was like, all right, I, I have this distinct memory of this holiday event with my grandfather and bigger family all around. What age were you? I'm going to guess like 12 or 13. And he had asked everybody a question. Some, I think it was something along the lines of, what do you want to do in the next year? Or what are you thankful? I don't know. It was, I'm sure it was much smaller than how I took it. And when it came around to me, I said, I want to find the meaning of life. And I remember everybody, uncles, cousins, mom, dad, laughing affectionately. I mean, it wasn't like a mocking laugh, but it was a laugh. And, and, I, and I took it like, oh, these people don't get me. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, these people don't get me. Like, I'm, like, I'm serious. Um, and then um, high school came around and uh, I, when I discovered... <laughs> drugs and raves it was like just the world opened up and i had a bunch of uh, really kind of transcendent peak experiences it was like in high school uh yeah this had been I, I i went to my first rave i think at the beginning of my senior year in high school so this would have been like 94 95 wow so you raved without drinking or taking any drugs because you were clearly underage
0: that's
1: <laughs> really incredible. <laughs> well, actually, the first rave that I went to with my friends, um, one of my friend's moms was going through a midlife crisis. And so she took us to a rave that she was, I don't know. Um, and so we, we had smoked weed, but like that was it. And we were there. And I had never danced in my life. Um, I grew up, my dad was a Baptist pastor until I was in second grade. I never danced at all no one in my family danced and so i didn't know what to do and i just saw these people dancing and just so liberated and i knew like i need to do that i don't know how right and so then the next time we went back we uh, ate a bunch of mushrooms and it was like all of a sudden i know how to dance fucking like party in high I, school i know well i yeah <sighs> i mean a part of that was like i'm on a mission to find out like what this life is about that's like, cool yeah, yeah. and, and And no one else that I knew, even my friends, it was like the partying was more of a party thing. And for me, it was like, oh, no, there's something else here. Like, I don't know what.
0: And an interesting thing that I'm sure that you'll resonate with is I wrote, I started a very shitty blog uh, when I was in college and the URL, it's still on the internet. It's uh, dot. Com, i believe oh
1: okay we gotta look it up <laughs> and
0: one of the first articles i wrote was actually about rave culture mm-hmm. and how uh i had read uh, Nietzsche's first book about the like what the god dionysus oh, and yeah. what the god apollo yes, did for yeah. the greek culture and i was like raves are the continuation oh, of the god. spirit of dionysus and that it's actually a org organic religious function that brings people into that state of consciousness. And it's why it's so popular. It's why it's mainly like a, uh, place of refuge for young adults in a culture that, you know, God's Mm -hmm. been dead for a long time and we have it like, it's, it's a larger conversation. I want to hear more about your story, but The gods don't die. We've just gotten to a point where the gods are so traumatized that they don't believe that they're gods. And we call them capitalism, consumerism, Mm. institutionalism. Mm. Like it's our isms, but Mm. all of them think that they've killed God. Like that's how much they hate dad. You know, (laughs) which is like, I was never a God. I'm a logical system about how economics works. But the interesting thing about economic systems is they imply a human nature which actually was the domain of religion for a long time and so like a lot of our economic systems are pseudo religious in an interesting way but we don't need to go down that rabbit hole so
1: you were raving in high school and i just want to add i didn't realize it at the time but you're absolutely right there is this innate need for the transcendent for for yes and and uh i didn't have that intellectual framework for it, but I was drawn to it. I was like, oh, this is amazing. um, and so I did a lot of partying, a lot of, uh, being in the, the rave culture. I eventually, uh, so, uh, I, through weird happenstance, I was forced to go into drug rehab uh, when I was 19, um, caught in the whirlwind of my uncle's stuff. And so, my family uh, forced me to go into drug rehab. And then I didn't have anything else to do. Uh, like, I was in a position where I was like, I don't know what to do. So, I might as well go to college. And so, I was 19, I was forced to go to college because I had not gone that year, went to Burning Man. Throwing raves, and um, so I, so I decided if I go back to college, I'm only going to study what I want to, and so I ended up studying religious, or I ended up being a religious studies major, and then I found out that it was just anthropology. I was like, oh, I thought I was going to learn about the meaning of life here. No, it was like it's basically anthropology. So then I decided to major in psychology, and um, so uh, we talked before uh, we turn on the recording that. My academic career was like a, a frog being slowly boiled. Like I didn't realize what was happening, and so I, uh, you know, I, I said before, like in my junior year, a professor for the first time in my academic career had said, "This is a really good paper. Like this has a lot of promise," and that was like a hit of of a powerful drug. And I was like, oh, The MDMA timed with a drop of the song. And uh, it was just oh, right. yeah. I was like, I need more of that. And so I, so I went on and, um, and then I was going to uh, just leave it at that. I didn't know what I was going to do. Oh, yeah, I think I was going to become a lawyer for a man. I was like, okay, well, I, I, I'll just go to law school because I don't know what to do next. And then my future father-in-law, who is an academic, he uh, ha- has has a PhD in history and worked in academic administration, was like, "You should go to grad school. Like, you can totally do it." And I didn't think that was possible. No one you in my family be like me, <laughs> <laughs> right? and I was like, I, "I didn't even know that was possible. Can I like me? I can go to grad school? Oh yeah!" And and so I. Dip my toe in and just got a master's degree, which is just two years, you know, you you write a thesis, which isn't a full dissertation. It's not that big of a deal. And so, uh, but I I was hooked immediately because like, I get to just read and write and focus (laughs) on the stuff that I like. Like, I don't need to take math. I don't need to take science. So I got a master's in political theory. Then, my thesis in political theory got me interested in the suburbs and how suburban how American suburban culture is is just so corrupt and and um, uh, not attuned to the human flourishing. Not attuned, thank you. Thank you. Not attuned to human flourishing. And so I got really interested in that because, yeah, the thesis was about the anti-democratic nature of American suburbs. And so then I decided, okay, I want to study the suburbs. Like that's I just want to find out like what is what makes these these things tick. And the thing
0: that I think is an interesting frame for people is that the suburbs are like an organ in the body of Western culture if you think of it as like a grand organism the invention of the suburb is like a mutation for like a new type of fundamental unit of how the culture organizes itself. And it's also, it's something that I've never
1: heard anyone talk about. It's, it is the perfect environment for this modern creation. We call the nuclear family. So the nuclear family, and this was part of my dissertation. was So the nuclear family is, uh, you know, we grew up thinking like mom, dad, this is the natural y- unit. But of course, the nuclear family is a very modern invention. And it, it really needed its own environment, not these dense um, urban environments. So, so the first suburb was actually outside of London in uh, the early 1800s. And then when it came to the U.S., uh, it, it was it was wrapped up with this Christian nuclear fan, this promotion of Christian nuclear families, um, and yeah. So I was fascinated with the suburbs, and I so I grew up, you know, in the late '90s when I was an undergrad. These kind of classic films like, um, well, like The Matrix it was, had that like work heard that. work you, life you suburban <laughs> thing. What what there were there were like seven... Fight Club was also uh, um, uh, American Beauty, um, Office Space. I I feel like a bunch of these films like all at once just shitting on the suburbs. And I was like, oh man, like, so go ahead a a decade and like, I want to study this. I want to get really academic around this. So I went and got a degree, uh, a PhD in cultural geography to study the suburbs. And it was just pure just fascination. Like it, it it seemed so rotten. Um and I just want to find out what makes it tick. And uh eventually I was led to studying megachurches in the suburbs because I grew up in a megachurch. I mean it 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 felt just a natural fit. Uh, my dad was a Baptist pastor, as I said. And so uh it, it ended up looking at like what are the what are the cultural institutions that make fragmented suburban existence tolerable? Mm. Like, because we're really isolated. We're fragmented. Like th- these, these, these environments, as all those, those films show, there's like something really missing uh, as we spread out like this. And we live in these auto-centric suburbs. Can you define that word? autocentric oh yeah so um automobile yeah so oh, so just yeah. yeah just like dependent on an isolated automobile i mean at least the first suburbs were railroads uh were you know railroad suburbs so there was a little bit more of a community like all the men would get on the train and you know go right. go in together um but then once the automobile hit and los angeles is like the perfect example of this. once the automobile hits in the early 20th century we have just this bizarre just explosion in uh, outside of metropolitan centers, that it's just a, this patchwork sprawl.
0: I heard someone go on a little monologue about maybe it was the invention of the car that brought down the USSR. And the idea is that the moment the the like Western automobile was able to get into the USSR, the individual humans got to feel what it feels like to have like a world at your control Ooh. that does what you say Yeah, where you get, like they got to feel the autonomy yes. and the power yeah. that like the car totally. does oh, to the I consciousness that, that <laughs> like rises this <laughs> yeah. feeling in the body of I am a individual. Yes. And I can exert my will on the world. Yes. And that that can change a political system. That can change a religion. Yes. But it also creates this weird like, delusion. Oh, massive dark side. Yeah. A quote that I just heard from um, family therapy is the idea that the individual human is a illusion. The fundamental unit of the organism is the family. That like the, like if, if you were trying to understand a wolf, you wouldn't just look at its fur and that that would be like the individual human. Yeah. Whereas the functional organism is the body, which is the family.
1: Well, And I would want to take that one step further. That That family family, is not nuclear family. Yeah, yeah, that it's actually a tribe. Yeah, uh, yeah, that it's um, a larger. Were
0: you able to use the word tribe in your papers? No. thank you for that. No, that
1: is academically verboten. No, yeah, Yeah, no, um, no, but, uh. Can you define verboten? Because uh, that was dope. Sorry. No, that was great.
0: (laughs) I was just like, I I knew from the context, but I didn't want to just lie to you and pretend (laughs) like I knew
1: what that meant. Great word. Uh, It's all good. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I love, um, I was really influenced in my dissertation by Emile Durkheim. So he's the, one of the founding figures in sociology. And that was his take, is that there's no such thing as an individual. This idea of an individual is a totally modern concept. And that when we really take into, when we broaden our scope and look at the history of Homo sapiens, like, there's no such thing as an individual. We are, we are deeply communal. Yeah.
0: And I think a deep point here that I think is, like, I need to articulate it to myself is that as a conceptual idea, when it comes to you should have individual rights, it's a great idea. If you're looking at who you are as a plant, that what are the things that this plant needs to be healthy? The concept of the individual is only going to make it easy for you to make yourself sick as fuck.
1: Right.
0: But that if you look at it from the view of to understand what I am as a plant is to understand that I am in soil, that I am in con- like that I can't be what I am meant to be if I see myself as only a individual. Yeah, and so I think it's 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 a good point to make clear individual rights, and and if if you you know, have nuance to add to that. I would love to hear it. But what it sounds like to me is it's a useful illusion to the degree that it enables us to have a culture that allows for individual rights and freedoms. And if you want to be healthy, if you want to understand what the animal that is you needs in order to not get tremendously ill. Yeah. You need to think about yes. it as a community.
1: Yeah. So I like the idea of transcend and include as yes. kind of this evolutionary uh, force. And so I, I remember first hearing that idea from Ken Wilber, but I I, I know there's uh, others who talk about this transcending and including. And so uh, I I think that our our communal social nature is absolutely critical, and it but it's but it's partial. I mean we. Uh, we've we've we saw how uh, going back to the land in the '60s and living in communes uh, is certainly not the answer. We see how uh, it's. I mean, it's just not possible to live in these hunter gatherer communal uh, ways, even though that would be the physically and mentally healthiest thing for us to do. But it's 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 gone. And I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing either. I think what we're being called into is transcending and including, or including yeah. and transcending it. And so, what's what's next? Um, and that was what propelled me to write the email. I was like, oh, I just I, I like I want to noodle on these ideas because they're like partially academic, but they're also there. There's there's also just this felt kind of spiritual evolutionary thing here that that I feel is coming into being. So what I felt at Fit for Service was filling this community vibe. I mean, it was just such a beautiful community. Every You could walk up to everybody. I mean, I went, I didn't know a single person. And so I went and just wow. said hi and I just met a bunch of people. And And then throughout the week, it's like, oh, I mean, just feeling in community. And then I was so thrilled with the circling at the end. I've done a lot of authentic relating, which is kind of the like, cousin of, of that. And I, I, I think that is a massively important technology. Completely agree. It, it's Completely like, agree. it is the way to bring that community communal need into our lives again, but in a modern way. There's something about
0: that type of relating that a guy Sangstock taught with circling that it actually changes the like channel of consciousness that you're on. Yeah. Yeah. That like when, when you learn, when you start to play a game with your consciousness, which is when someone speaks to you, your response begins with what I'm noticing yeah. and it's about what you feel. So I notice when you share X that I feel, and then you just divulge. You reveal your experience. Right. (laughs) Once you get into that habit, because I've done it a few times now, my consciousness changes where if I was more sloppy with the words that I use, I would say it feels like I'm channeling. like It's like an altered state of consciousness where the Mm. neurotic, eric, Part that has his fears and his insecurities and his posturings. It's like that part just evaporates like a cloud. It's not that like it moves, it's not like it dies. It's just kind of like a cloud coming apart. And then there's something like personality list that is beginning to arise out of me that surprises me with how kind and curious. And like on point it is. And then to feel that come out of the other person, because there's almost like this tone and a cadence of speech that we're all used to. That when we know when someone is in that tone and that cadence, oh, this is the version of them that if they ask me, how am I doing? The only right answer is to say good. You know, like yeah. we're, we're in persona land. Yes, yes. But then there's a cadence and a tone where it's like, oh, they're naked right
1: now. Yes, yes.
0: And there's something about that reciprocal back and forthness of just being vulnerable that like, it's so much more potent than a coach being on stage. No matter how dope the lecture is, no matter how dope the workshop is, it doesn't even come close to if you can... Share a game because really, what it is is it's like a word game. Yes, that can get people into that state where they begin to feel. And I think because most people say that that was the part that was like the most. Oh, really? Is that what they said that 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 was? They said that the breath work was the most profound, but that the circling was the thing that they enjoyed the most. Yeah, and I think that there's something about the nature
1: of the felt sense in your body that you're being seen. Uh, and c- I mean, there, there's a level of connection. So I came into contact with Authentic Relating uh, a couple of years and ago. And for people
0: who don't know, can you can I explain what it yeah, is? Yeah, so
1: Authentic Relating is like the cousin of c- circling. The way I think about their relation and talking with people in the movement is Authentic Relating is just a little bit more structured. So there are Authentic Relating games, which are very much the same as what we did um, So I don't really know how much uh, there is really a difference. Um, Ryle Castano is uh, one of the head figures in authentic relating. and, And he's the one that I learned all of my stuff from around this. And he talks about like these different levels of communication. And so we have this kind of what you... Talked about just this normal cadence. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. And then, yeah, you better not say anything other than fucking good. I'm not trying to hear you talk about right, right. Because we like it's almost like we have a script, and you need to play your role, and I'm going to play mine. And then there's another level, and I'm going to butcher it, but there's like there's another level where we're talking about things that are important to us, and so we might drop a level deeper of like, all right, you know, I I really loved the breath work. Tell me what your experience was like. And you know, we might talk about that. So that's a deeper level. And then there is this level that you're talking about where it drops back. And we, I think he calls this the relational or something, but um, at this point, we are just noticing what's happening for us now. And we're revealing our experience to the, the other person. And then they're doing the same back to us and we're just noticing what's happening now in this moment. And as you said, it's, it's a whole nother level. And the way that I now understand it, well, or one of the frames that I like to put on it is an internal family systems frame that, you know, parts are wonderful, no bad parts. Um, I'm reading that book right now. I love it. Oh my god! Internal family systems has changed my life. Yeah, let's <laughs> so, go, dude. I've, I've been talking. <laughs> to, I
0: just looked at Graham. I've been talking about IFS for the last like, like I've known about it for years. But um, oh, the deeper you go. Oh yeah. my god! Like in the last few weeks, I've I've started reading his most recent book called No Bad Parts, and it's fucking phenomenal. Um, So a couple of the things that, and I think that this will just be interesting for the conversation, we'll see where it goes, but I've been trying to reverse engineer um, modern cults for like, what is it that they're doing at the beginning that gets so many people to be like, you know what, this thing that talks about the thing called Scientology? Yeah, I'll go try that out. Like, what is it that's working? And what I found, um, and so I was looking into Scientology and Hexium, and Scientology took a lot of their opening techniques from Jung and Freud. And then from Hexium, they took a lot of their court techniques from NLP. And so, you know, I have the background in Jung and Freud. And so then I started to study NLP. And the thing that All of them have in common. So for Scientology, it's Dianetics, and then you know for Jung and for Freud, it's talk therapy and like dream work. For NLP, it's about um, like hypnosis plus like parts work, but it doesn't use that language. Yeah, and then for Hexium, what they called it was EM
1: ah yes eming and that's exploration of meaning I didn't understand in the documentary yeah so do you know more about what that is now yeah so eming
0: is like it's 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 their version and their language of NLP um except less complicated what all of those things are doing is they're attempting to help people make contact with their developmental trauma hmm And for some people, it would be acute trauma, and for some people, it would be complex trauma. Um, And I've been studying trauma deeply the last, like, five or six weeks. And the thing about parts work that, for me, makes it the ace on the top of the deck of all of these things is, one, you don't have to explain a model to someone Mm -hmm. because people just use a part of me. Like they just use that phrase, you don't have to teach them ego or id or whatever the fuck Scientology was trying to teach you. Like you don't need to do any of that. Yeah. The other thing no, is you don't need to know the content. Like I've I've seen Richard Schwartz yes. do drop-ins with people where he tells them, and you don't have to share with me the content. Yes. Yes, there is nothing that I've I want ever to this so much. There yes. is nothing that I've ever studied where the person who's trying to help you believes that they can help you without
1: you having to articulate what the content is. So, Eric, I just it's, so I, uh, I, I I'm one of the things that I do is I'm an emotional health coach, and I've in, incorporated IFS with mindfulness and some other stuff. So, I've been doing this for about a year and a half. And it has blown my mind. It's like so beautiful when I get to work with a person who's like, I have had 20 years of therapy and I've told my story time and time and time again. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. Dude, we don't need to talk about it.
0: (laughs) And and that it works. Like the thing, like when I first found IFS, it actually scared me because of how potently it worked. Mm. And there was like a part of me that didn't trust myself that to have that type of like influence. But one of the things that really helped me relax into it is that I didn't need to hear their content, but I did it with eight clients over the course of two days. I just on each of my, and every single one breakthroughs in ways where it's not like there's a thing that can happen in the therapeutic container where patient because of their developmental trauma needs to please you at the expense of their own truth and uh, in trauma lingo that would be called that would be called the fawn response and the really interesting thing is if you're a healer or a helper or a therapist or a nurse or whatever you likely have the fawn response deep in your unconscious. Mm-hmm. And if you want to check out a book on that, it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child, yeah, yeah, which is a book written by a psychotherapist who does psychotherapy for psychotherapists and has found that almost all of them have the same type of like childhood overview, which is one or both parents were emotionally incapable of regulating the, themselves. And you know, unconsciously and sometimes consciously co opted mm. the child to be the regulator of the adult, which a child is not equipped to do. And so the child, in order to survive, must abandon their own needs and be a parent for their parent. And those people tend to be really good therapists yeah. and really good Hell psychologists yeah. <laughs> and really good healers and things like that. But that, um, the thing with the parts work is it because I didn't have to hear their content, I could feel how it like how they were having a transformative experience within themselves, yes. but there was no trying to like do a thing for me, and I literally have never like there's something the the other thing that really makes it potent for me is um. David or uh, Richard Swartz talks about, I'm a phenomenologist. I'm just telling people what these patients told me.
1: Yeah.
0: Like I am not attached to any of this shit. This is not me having thought up a model. This is after having sat down with thousands of people who have, have been sick and just listening to what they've told me, this is what I've seen as a pattern. In everyone,
1: right, and uh, if I remember correctly, the unburdening process he got through working with other therapists who were like trying to piece together different like shamanic things, and you know, so it was like really like what is coming out here, what need, what's what's kind of being called into this, right,
0: and so the core dynamic in NLP, hexium shit, Scientology shit freud's work and jung's work is and also in ifs is making contact with whatever emotion it is that is the that is the current one that you want to work with and then asking the question when's the first time that you remember having felt that and you work with I can feel that we need to almost like change the context and the wording around it because it's become moot for a lot of people, but there is some aspect of your consciousness that is living parts of your past in the present in a way that is outside of your direct awareness that runs your life most of the time as your habits.
1: Those are parts, right? That's exactly
0: what I'm trying to get at is that what what all these models of healing have in common is it's about making contact with those things in a way where you're able to transform them in a way where your expression in the world going forward is more in alignment or in a tune with who you feel
1: you truly are. Yeah. So I think the real innovation with IFS that blows everything else out of the water is that I think these other approaches um, and including ones in the just conventional world of psychotherapy and uh, psychology, I think ultimately what they do is they help people just make better manager parts. And so they, yeah. they, they're like, okay, let's just find the most adult manager part and let's just really pump that one up and get it to really take control and let this person lead a functional life. And so the game changer in IFS for me is like, we're constantly looking for that. That source, that that true self, and that has just blown me out of the water because I, you know, I was a secular academic, and, and I, I was, you know, determined to leave uh, the whole spiritual world behind. But IFS has been a big part of just bringing that back in, and it's like, oh no, no, this is this is the therapeutic core. Like, we're not here to make better manager parts. <laughs> yeah. One of the stories
0: that comes to mind is um there's a Buddhist story where there was a village that had a incredible um like mud buddha like it was this like clay buddha and they worshiped it and it was this huge awesome thing it was kind of like the landmark of the town and then um there was a whole bunch of rains that came over and over and over again for like a week and a half, and uh, some of the people in the village started to see that there were these like, it looked like the statue was starting to like melt, and what they eventually saw is that underneath it it was a gold Buddha, and the way this story was told to me by Jack Cornfield, not personally, I read in a book, is yeah. that oh,
1: sweet. Tell me about Jack. Yeah, is
0: is uh, that this is a true story that it was like clay and the clay finally got pierced and it started to melt away and it revealed this incredible gold Buddha. And the idea that Jack was trying to share is what Buddhism is trying to do is it's trying to help people make contact with there is this fundamental essence yeah. in each of us that is like the shard of the divine in us that is, gets covered up Layer over layer over layer of every time that we've ever been hurt, and every time that we've ever been hurt, we've created some armor, you know, and yeah. we all have the armor. And that there's a phenomenon in IFS that Richard Schwartz found over and over and over again. And because he too was not religious, like he had to have this like beat into his face That's over right. and over and over again because he didn't want to believe it, was that. As you clear people's triggers by doing the IFS model, what he found over and over and over again is this other thing would emerge yeah. that all of the clients would say, this doesn't feel like a part. Yeah. It feels like it's who I actually am. Yes. And that whenever that part would enter into the like, atmosphere of the consciousness of the person that they were working with, that part would simply just know. <laughs> what needed to yes. be done? Yeah. What the inner child that got hurt, what they required, yeah. what they ne- needed to hear. If they need to like start oh my
1: God. going swimming or whatever. And as a coach, like how wonderful is it to be like, I don't have to know anything. Like, I be like what are you like it, when a client is is connected with that core, with that source, like what do you feel like the next step is here? What are you feeling into here? And like, it's like, I, I don't need to have any of the, the answers. Like they're all inside. Once, once you're connected, I feel like my job in the sessions is basically just to notice when manager parts are trying to come in and then can we just get them to relax back? Because once you get a little bit, with, like you, just, just maybe two or 3% self, like two or 3% of that core source and I was like, all right, we're on a roll. One of the things that
0: really stood out to me when I was reading um, No Bad Parts is that uh, there's a phenomenon in family therapy that if you have the whole family in the room, if one, it tends to happen with kids, that when one of the kids starts to get really upset, that uh, if you watch... There's often an older family member in the child's peripheral vision that just changed their body language to either convey that they agree and they're on their team or they're upset and they're not on that kid's team. And so what the therapists have learned is if you ask the parent to step back out of the peripheral vision of of the child, the the child… And this is without you confronting the child. It's you just asking the mom to take a a step back. The child starts to calm down. And so what Schwartz found is that that's, he found that to be equally effective in parts work. Yes. Which is like, I think it's important to try to anchor this for people. So it would be like, if you were explaining to me that you were currently struggling with overeating, And if I started to talk about like, let's, you know, like where do you think the root of that would be? If you instantly started to go into like, well, I saw a study about X, Y, and Z on this podcast. And I really, that is a part that, that is coming to try to protect the younger part that feels like, because I feel fundamentally alone and I feel like I'm not loved by anyone in my life. That when that feeling is so overwhelming, I notice that I unconsciously start to go to eat, because when I was eight, and my mom left one day, uh, there was a bunch of food in the pantry, and I remember just like completely depressed, and I ate all the Oreos or whatever. And that, that was the first time that memory happened. But if you've ever tried to work with people who have those type, which all of us have those types yeah. of oh, pains, God. But there's all these layers, all these parts will come in to try to keep you from making contact with that really vulnerable feeling. And that you can, if you can articulate to the person. So I, I completely hear that part. And, um, I was wondering if it would be willing to step out of the way. Yeah. So that I could talk to the eight-year-old who had that experience. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, all types of parts can come come in because parts typically don't know that there is a true self. They because the way that I like to think about it is, you know, the true self has has, has always been there. It's it's completely whole, completely undamaged. But it grew up in a body that was weak, that was small. It had a brain that didn't know enough. It grew up in a family that was not supportive. And so parts had to come in and take on extreme roles in order to protect you. Like your life depended on these parts stepping up and taking on big uh, extreme roles. And so by the time we get to, you know, 30 years old, 40 years old, these parts are like, no, there's no true self. Or if there is a true self it's weak and it's and it's dumb and it and it can't do shit and so in this work it like so much of the work is just getting these parts to relax back and it's like but the true self now is in a big body that's all grown up it's in a brain or it it now has access to a brain and a bunch of analytical parts that are really important and strong it it, it it you know it's safe now and when you let the true self flow all good shit happens but that's that's the journey is getting these parts to even just just be like, all right, but because what I've experienced in a lot of clients is parts are like, but if but if I relax back, then bad things are gonna happen. Right. Yeah. Like if I stop analyzing, I then I won't figure this out and then we're gonna get hurt. I'm like, percent okay. One of the things that's been whispering to me as I've been studying about
0: trauma and then IFS and um this whole amalgamation of things is that uh, it seems to overlap really well for me with Buddhism, and that I can feel that, like there is a profundity to to the phenomenology of consciousness that it's almost like if you look directly at it, it's like looking at the fucking sun, mm. and it like there's a thing at the core of the phenomenology of consciousness that if you look at it, it breaks you until you look away from it. And it's so total and uh, incomprehensible yet just like the sun, it's always here. Our entire, everything is based off of the fact of that thing that we can't look directly at that if you do, it starts to hurt. And that there's something like fundamentally miraculous about the fact that consciousness works, Mm. that it is, and that it continues to be in every moment. And that what the Buddhists were trying to elucidate is that, you know, like the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao that if you can connect to the phenomenological experience of consciousness, and you can connect to the fact that it is, if the word invincible means anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is
0: invincible in that it's never been hurt. It's witnessed hurt. It's never been angry. (laughs) It's witnessed angry. It dies every day when you sleep and comes back Every day, no matter how much mushrooms you eat or how much LSD you eat. Now there's some asterisks there, but for me, (laughs) it is always come back. Yeah, it's this ground, and that there's something about developing the habit of consciousness to appreciate the the awareness that golden Buddha. That when you're in that space, that space is like the master. Gardener. Yeah. And it knows. And it's, I think it's the part that even when you're completely disconnected from it, it sends you whispers yeah. like, totally leave that job <laughs> yeah. or yeah. go yeah. talk to that attractive yeah. person at the
1: yeah.
0: cafe yeah. or you really need to stop yeah. doing X. Go to fit for service. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and that. It's,
1: it's there and that it's never not there. What makes it so hard for me and for every client that I've worked with um, is that it, it's, yeah, it's not like any part because it's so, it can't be seen because it's the seer. It can't be observed because it's the observer. And so it's really this, this thing that, that we can relax back into and, and, that's, that's, that's hard. Like, that's really hard. Have you seen the documentary Stuts? Yeah. All right. So absolutely loved it. Okay. I, I have a problem with Stuts. I heard your podcast about Stuts, and I was like, oh, I, maybe we'll get to talk about Stutz.
0: But Yeah. Okay. So the thing that I was going to get to, and then I would love to hear what the critique is, because that's awesome, is that
1: this idea of part X. Okay. Yeah. This is. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is,
0: um. One of the things about Buddhism that I love so much is it's one level higher than what Stutz is offering with like that Pardex is a type of phenomenon that when you connect to the witness, the witness is able to evaporate any part if you just look at it with the golden with the golden Buddha. And what I mean by that is even in, um, I believe it's pronounced Jogchen, which is a type of Buddhism, which it's all, it's, it's like a more advanced version where you use, you hone your consciousness to be able to stay on one thought or, or yeah. breath or whatever. And then you use that clarity and you turn it on yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what they talk about is like, you can get to a point and maybe I've deluded myself, but I feel like I'm at this point and I don't like to do it, but I I still do it like once a day, just as like, uh, there is nothing. Like we have this feeling that your identity, like Eric is behind my eyes. And it's kind of like, In my body, but it's kind of more in my head and not so much in my feet and for sure not in that cup on the table, but that if you're able to connect to the witness and then you turn it around on everything that you think you are, all of it is just gone for a moment. But then the really interesting thing is I can do that every day. And then for the next 99.99% of my waking day, I have completely for a guy.
1: And thank God because these parts help us get through the day. Like These parts are helping us have this conversation right now. So your parts help you take a shit. The parts, everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I see that true self as really just this, this flow. It's it's like, it is this mystical source flow, you know, and I, I, um, yeah. uh, It's the Tao. Yes, it is. It's the Tao that moves through you. Yes. Yes. And um, oh, but to get to part X. So what it was so hard for me. So I sat down because actually one of my clients sent me, uh, that, uh, um, the link and she's like, oh, you got to see this. So I was like, okay, great. I'm going to put it on when they got to part X it was like gripping. I was like, no, no, there's no. Okay. Okay. So in my view, there's no part X, part X, Thinking about products the way that he described it as this part that, that kind of pushes against you, and, and this, 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 this part that, that, that is that has kind of negative effects in your life or this negative force in your life that only makes sense from the perspective of another manager part. And that once we get to relax back and from that perspective of the true self, where it's just compassionate curiosity. And it, whatever we might think our part X is, if we were to really get to tap into our source and to have compassionate curiosity for it, say, oh, what do you want to tell me? What, what job do you have in my system? What are you afraid would happen? If you stop doing this job and then you would learn that part X loves you part X has 100% good intentions for you No bad parts like I have witnessed this so many times in clients like the worst parts the parts they hate the most There's not a I've never met a part that does not have 100% good intentions
0: Yeah, so this is a really interesting nuanced thing to get into so uh, I would agree that part X loves you But it loves you in the same way that... So there's a couple of ways to come at this. One is from a cognitive psychology standpoint. Have you heard of the term opponent processing? No. So opponent processing is one of the fundamental architectural ways that consciousness bootstraps itself to get to the point where we're able to do what we do. Okay. And um, John Ver. Do yeah. you know who that is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He goes in really deep on like, at every level of conscious development in the human organism, mm-hmm. there's these there's always two things that the brain is trying to do, that the conflict between them will yeah. create uh, like this
1: dialectical process. Exactly, yeah, right,.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, um, you know, he's written paper after paper, like, that it's the highest tier, like, um, academic rigor that you could do. So there's that view. And then in um, AI computing, this was just explained to me today, so I don't know how, like, I haven't gone and confirmed this, but it came from a good source, is that, I forget the exact term, but what it does is there's a part that will generate the answer. Like when you, like these chat bots, like when you write a question, there's a part that will generate answers. And then there's a part that the sole function of that part is to try to look for right. anything in the answer that could be, that is obviously an AI response and not a more human response. And then it kills that part. And then whatever emerges out of that dialectical process becomes the thing that is offered. The way that I see paradox is there is a part of you that in order for you to become what you could be, you have to rub up against. It is the fundamental resistance, but that it's not evil. It's, yeah. it's genuinely, yeah. it's, like a, it's like a fundamental requirement for the movement of evolution to happen. But it loves you. Yeah. And if you slip it can literally drive you to kill yourself. Like it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not vindictive. It is, it is like a force of nature moving against you and that it is ultimately for you. And I think that that's the best way. Like it is the opponent. Mm. Like it is the fundamental resistance in you, but it's, Like one of the things that like I feel personally in my relationship to it is that at any point when I become aware, because like the nature of my part X, if you will, is it's like it knows it can't present itself as part X because I've done enough work where I could just move through it. The way Part X comes up for me is like you've done so much today. You really deserve, you know, X, Y, or Z. But then after I do X, Y, or Z, if I keep doing
1: those things, I'm not who I want to be, you know? And so like- Well, so in, from the perspective of IFS, and, and so this might be my like academic rule following part of like, okay, well, so in the IFS model, The part that is like, oh, you know, you've done so much, is noticing that in your system there might be stress, there might be exhaustion, and so it's a firefighter part that is like, all right, like eat the eat the tub of ice cream, scroll the social media, do you know? uh, We're we're essentially going to put out the flames here, and that if you were to make contact with that part as a firefighter part, you would understand. Well, or I'll 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 say in my experience when I make contact with Firefighter parts are when I help clients make contact with them. They have these, yeah, one hundred percent good intentions. Um, their intention is 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 not to help the client grow, though. It, it's 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 to it's because I don't think we can handle this. Like I I in the past we have not been able to handle this before, and, and I, I need think, to put out the flames now right. before it gets worse. And
0: so I think the thing that merges it together is the. The force that seems to give any energy at all to every fire fighter part is what he's referring to as part X. So,
1: yeah. And, and, and I guess what has worked so well for me in my personal life, and then also in my coaching, is to, tr- is, is to just, just approach every part knowing, like, okay, if we really get to know this part, we're going to find out that it, that it ultimately has a job, that it wants the best for the client, that it goes back to a time where it's, where it's trying to combat a feeling of shame, a feeling of you know fear, or whatever the case is. Um, if we can get that part to relax back enough to show us the exile that it's protecting then we can help the exile heal and so for listeners who don't know IFS exiles are the parts that are holding the wounds like their job in your system is basically to hold the pain so it doesn't flood your system that's that's their job and so but they're but they're being protected they're being locked away so the, so the pain doesn't flood so Manager parts. Who- real quick for the exiles, I think that this might help people is that your
0: primary biological requirement as a child is to attune to your environment, no matter how destructive your environment is, because yeah. if you don't, you die, period. Yeah. And so, whenever the environment creates a type of stimulus that is too painful for you to hold completely at the age that you are at, you will. Your, the intelligence of your body will disassociate you in some way from the immensity of that feeling. Totally. And the idea is that any time that you were overwhelmed, a part of you froze in that, at that age, at that experience, in that context, that then generates a protector to try to keep you from ever having to feel that part again. And for anyone listening if you take a moment to write down every memory that you have of a time that you felt intense fear or mm. sh- or shame as a kid, you might, you know, come up with like eight. If you keep working at it, because I'm currently at like 55. Like I've been Amazing. working on this for the last two Hell months. Yeah. Oh my God. And, um, one of the things that, that I've learned is that most of those I don't need to go into, but that there's like eight that are yeah, like right, big right. ones yes. and that I can see, oh my God, like for me, there was a moment when um, I was like 10 or 11 and I had ordered porn on my family's TV and I didn't understand that there would be a bill that would come in the mail and when the bill finally came you know cuz we were all so very tight on money uh, i had a brother who was 5 years older than me and i have a very distinct memory of my mom is screaming at him with the bill in her hand and he's yeah. uh, like he's in shock he's like no and she slapped him hard wow. and the just a huge amount of shame Ooh. came up in me as both a coward and as like I did something so wrong that my mom would hit my brother. In hindsight, I think my mom was smart enough to know that it was me, but that it was too disgusting to her to even she amet- hold that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because why did that happen in front of me? You know, like that's why I think that it was mm. like you know. Mm. But yeah. then I could track like the repercussions of that moment informed so much shame in my life mm. as a teenager around the fact that I was attracted to women and that that felt deeply wrong and like a and way you would where- you
1: get in trouble for it.
0: Right. Yeah. And that I also had this strong feeling that I was a coward mm. and like I would do well at mm. sports. I'd do well with friends, but I could never shake this feeling that like I was a coward. And what was interesting- And I think that this is a cool thing just for people to note is the wound of being a coward was alchemized spontaneously through, I was in a couple of like life or death scenarios as like between the ages of 18 and 22. And in each of those, my instinctual response was like incredibly heroic and I did the right thing. And so that was able to actually alchemize my story around being a coward. But the shame around my desire was a thing that took much longer. And so that's just a specific example for people to really anchor to where anytime when your environment overwhelms you with fear or shame, those seem to be the main ones, uh, a part of you gets frozen. And that, that frozen part is still alive with you now. And the protectors that protect that part
1: run a lot of your life absolutely right. Their job is to make sure that that exiled part, carrying that pain, that shame, that fear, doesn't get out because because you you weren't able to process we we weren't as, as kids able to really let that that the fear, the shit what, whatever feelings we experienced, we weren't able to let those out because we risked losing attachment and so these parts keep it locked up their job or the exile job is to hold on to that pain and then the protector's job is to make sure that the exile does not get out and so when we say oh i w- was triggered like that's when the exile like part part of that was let out and that's when the firefighters come in and
0: you know it's so i like, yeah um yeah and real quick for so There's two types of protectors. There's the ones that like are trying to keep everything in order. And in IFS, they call those managers. And so for me, one of my big ones is workaholism. You know, like that's one of my strong ones. The other one is like, um, I have to prove myself as being helpful and wise. Mm. You know, like that's one of my protectors for sure. Your firefighters are the ones that instantaneously take over if the exile is triggered. And one that was really common for me in relationships was if I ever felt that the woman was not, was not if I felt betrayed, my firefighter was to go ice fucking cold. And in a way where it's like, I would go ice cold in front of them as a way to be like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not going to get anything from me because you hurt me. Yeah. And, you know, it took many years of me doing work on myself to get to the point where I could then recognize this firefighter. I'm also dramatic and mythological. So I like to give like mythological names to these parts if they come up a lot. And so that part came up as... uh, as samson from the bible you know and his whole thing is he got betrayed by a woman and then he got chained to two pillars and then he ripped down the pillars and then he killed everyone in the temple he had to grow his
1: hair back yeah Yeah.
0: and that um like i actually had a strong psychosomatic relationship to that pain where i would get back spasms Mm -hmm. when i felt utterly abandoned by women yes and like the mythological weirdness that the way it represented itself to me was that myth from the Bible. And what he does is he tears down two columns and it reminded me of the two muscles uh, that went down the uh, spine of my back, yeah, which is these, my temple.
1: Oh my God. I love how parts show up in the body. It's like, you just just go to the body. Just go to the body. And so that would be an example of a firefighter as opposed to a m- manager. Right. Yeah. They come in after the fact. The firefighters, but so what I love about IFS, I so this will tie it back to to the third thing. So I sent you an email. <clears throat> so uh, in this email, we I talked about community and transcendence. Like I was just witnessing this at Fit for Service. You guys did such an amazing job. Like I felt wow. I mean this this is this is what the whatever you want to call it, late modern late capitalist post-industrial world, you know, this is the community and transcendence that we need. But there's a third thing going on here, and it is personal growth or psychological growth. Um, And so in Homo sapiens history, it was enough to have community and transcendence. That was good for us for 200,000, maybe more. I mean, Who knows, there's probably like hominids before homo sapiens that were involved in community and uh, transcendence. But that was good enough until we, well, until city-states started to come in. And then eventually we see um, what academics call the axial age pop pop up where you have Plato and Lao Tzu and uh, I don't know who, um, you have a bunch of like wisdom traditions beginning sometime around 500 BCE. And this is the beginning of like personal growth. So it's not just community. It's not just transcendence. Something else is going on here. And it's only for like the, the elite of the elite. I mean, like this stuff is not spreading out into the community. This is like for the, the, the point zero 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 one. But then it starts to grow uh, as modernity hits. So in like the 1500s, um, I think the The Protestant Reformation is a part of this, of just grown where we now need personal growth. And the reason we need personal growth is because starting with modernity, but we see this in city states as well. We have a density and a complexity complexity. in our society that we can't solve just through the old homo sapien tricks that we had. Community and and transcendence was enough for the small hunter-gatherer tribes. What are we doing when we are growing into massive societies where we don't know everybody and it's too complex for us to hold? And so I think personal growth is the next uh peace. So you got community, you got transcendence. We need those. Those are part of our human history. They're part of our human evolution and we've lost them. I mean, this is, uh, so part of my dissertation was on uh, the history of secularization, which was fascinating just to see, you know, God die. And still, so I I just saw today before I came over, I was like, I need to see what the latest stats are. And it's now 30% of the U.S. population. Uh, says that they uh, ascribe to no religious faith. And this is this has been going up every single year since they started to uh, look at this. And then you see every single faith, every single faith just ticking down and nuns, you know, uh, N-O-N-E-S rising up. And so we're losing the community and transcendence. We have these little pockets of personal growth, you know, um, but I think what we need now Are institutions that are going to be able to put these things together. And I think we we have the, um, like we have the ingredients for this. And I think IFS is a part of the personal growth picture. I think psychedelics are, I think therapy is, um, they're, they're all, they're all part of this picture. And I think the key to personal growth, the like really fundamental thing is found in Robert Keegan's work. And so Mm -hmm. I, are, are you familiar with Keegan and the Keegan developmental stages? I'm familiar with him enough where I bought his books, but I haven't read them. Yeah. So it's, so it's basically the idea is, is that from the moment we're born to the moment we die, our personal growth is propelled by this subject-object interaction. And so when we're born, everything is subject. That means everything's self. Like we're just born and it's like the whole, everything we see and feel is like it's all It's all us. And then, as soon as we start to like grab a rattle or you know whatever, we 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 start to differentiate. Oh, we start to differentiate subject from object or self from the other. And this is a process that goes throughout our entire lives, but it can get stalled. And so, for most of human history, it got stalled at what Keegan calls. Uh, stage three: social mind, and this is basically where we see the world. Our subject is our tribe, our interpersonal uh, group, um, the religion that we grew up in, all of so. We see the world through the lens of our community, our tribe, um, and that's where we were able to stop for most of human uh, history. We're now at a st- at a place where if we do not, if we can't get the majority of the people in uh at least the Western world right now, to grow to beyond stage three and to stage four, then What's I the think stage four. So stage four is what he calls the self-authoring mind. And so it's basically the where su- the, what was subject, just like when we were little babies, what was just the way we see the world, it was just us, it was ourselves, starts to become object. And so when we move from stage three to stage four, our community, the norms, the rules, the religion, the politics, everything we grew up with now becomes available as an object for reflection. Now we can start to reflect on on it. We can think about it. We can manipulate it. We can decide, well, do I want to keep that or leave leave that? And I I think a way to think about this as a
0: metaphor to help uh, anchor it for people is it's like. Your stage three consciousness is like when you look at your phone, you don't recognize that it's an Apple phone, that it's on the iOS like operating structure, and that like your iMessage and your Instagram are kind of like in your head and you can't see the icons on your actual phone. And to get to stage four is everything mom and dad thinks you should be what your coaches think you should be, what religion thinks you should be, what culture tells you you are, all of those are now icons on the phone and you can start to choose, Mm -hmm. all right, which ones do I want to use? Yeah. Uh, Which ones do I want to keep? Beautiful metaphor. Do I want to change them up? And that like, one of the things that we were talking about before we turned on the microphones is it's like, when you think about getting a PhD, if you're able to take out all of the things that you think are duh and you make them icons on the computer, it starts to look really weird where it's like, all right, uh, we're told when we're 18 that we have to know what we want to be to Mm -hmm. the tune of being willing to invest more money than we'll likely make in the next five years (laughs) uh, in such a way where it's the only debt on the planet that you can that you can't get rid of yeah. that you have to pay and that you're doing it so that you can be taught to think in a very specific way in a way where you for most people who get PhDs like if your advisor doesn't like you you're about to no, incur no, no, trauma oh no, yeah and that you're, you're not guaranteed a job and this is just one example of a hundred examples of things in our culture that because we're a part of the cult of culture, you know, like just the yeah. worldview that you need to take on for any of this shit to make sense, um it's because those apps are in you as opposed to the, the social media, yeah,
1: stage three yeah and 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 so that's so what we need are institutions that are going to help us turn subject into object like basically help us start to see the apps that are on our phone and so that's that's stage 4 would be to start to see the apps that are running your operating system and then being able to reflect on them dive deeply into them and then start to choose well is this the operating system that i want and what is the operating system that would be the best right so that's stage 4 and what is cool about Keegan is that he's like, well, it doesn't stop there. Because when, then what happens is that you start to then see the world through those, those apps. So like, okay, I, so for me, um, I grew up in a like fundamentalist, evangelical, Christian household, conservative, uh, Republican, right? And so those were the apps that were downloaded onto my phone. And as I started to do drugs in high school and go to raves, and then eventually college, it was like all those apps were like delete, 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 and but then the, the ones that I put on were like okay, secular uh, humanism, um, you know, academic rigor. Um, I don't know. Uh, what, well, actually, for a while, it was like really far-left politics, you know? Like, um, for like six months, it was like anarchism. or like or, Okay, maybe it's just democratic socialism. Right? Um, and so... We start to see the world then through the, uh, the, the self-constructed... He calls this the institutional mind in his first book, and then he later calls it the self-authoring mind. But he says, like, we basically set up these institutions now because, um, you know, we, we now need ways to think about the world and to live, but now they're, they're somewhat self-chosen. Um, what the next stage is is to start to see that, oh though there is no philosophical system there is no framework that can possibly provide all the answers there's nothing and what's he call that stage so then the next one is called the self transforming mind so that's stage 5 and there's no stage after stage 5 but the so so once you start to see that oh even these ideologies these frameworks uh, are partial and incomplete um that this then allows so he so it's interesting in in his in his first book he 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 says that at stage 5 when you start to see that oh your identity is just constructed and it's just there's like there's no point at which you're going to get the operating system that matches you know the universe like it's like it's just a f- framework or another way to say it is the map is never going to be the territory the menu is not what's for dinner <laughs> yeah exactly and that when you and and he says in his research he's he's i think it's not in the first book but a later one he says he's he never interviewed anybody who is like under 40 years old who's ever made it to stage 5 that you have to just go through enough life to start to see that we're just in this flow that that our identities are are constantly being um Created in the flow of our interactions um, and that's why I think circling and authentic relating are like ideal stage five practices. Um, but we need institutions basically that are going to help people wherever they are on the on the trajectory help them bring their subject out into object, bring their self out into, you know, so they can see what the operating system is. And then eventually see that the operating system isn't the whole thing either.
0: Ever. So are you familiar with Robert Anton Wilson?
1: No, but I've heard you talk about him. So I'm like really interested.
0: Yeah. So, um, I feel Almost like maybe I'm naive to claim that maybe I'm one of the people that uh, has level five, but that feels dumb to say, but it feels like Robert Anton Wilson helped me get to this maybe too early in a way that, Mm -hmm. but so the idea is called model agnosticism. And the idea is that in like physics has been at a state for the last 100 years where it just knows, okay. Okay. Newtonian physics, aka like uh, space time, is really useful for this cut of reality. And then quantum physics is really good for this cut of reality, but they don't agree with each other. But we use both and we just know when to use one and when to use the other. What's incredible is our eyes are like this. So, what our brain does with our eyes is that each of your eyes have a black hole in them where you can't see anything. But what the brain has done is because it uses two models of reality, it then puts those overlapping each other so that you can fill in the two blind spots. Like, which is literally the metaphor that we use for when you don't see a thing there that is like there. Like, each of these apps that are actually on the phone but you think are in you because you can't see them on the phone yet, those are your blind spots and that the phone is like stage five is recognizing that the phone is a phone and that it's actually not reality and where it starts to get super weird is are you familiar with donald hoffman
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: okay so (laughs) the the entirety of the phone on some level is space time that like the the entire apparatus that you're trying to make the object is to become, is, is to get space time out of your head and to be able to like really relax into the fact that space time is something that the human brain creates so that we can interact with the phone.
1: Yes. And thank God. Like uh, I, so I, I mean, i I remember there was a, a philosopher, I don't remember who now, who said like, humans are like the creatures who deal in middle-sized stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I like, yeah. Like, uh, so, I, I mean, I, I I kind of lose That was t- interesting,
0: is the reason why it intuitively feels like it's the middle is because of how chained we are to what fits us yeah because it's not the middle it's, <laughs> right it's our day it, I mean, it, there's it, no objective middle right yeah, because yeah. It, but yeah. it feels like that because we as a subjective experience is the s- center of the universe yes and so there's a very like of the time scales we can only what only makes sense to us is the things that make sense to a thing that lives for 80 to 100 years because of the size of our hands, the thing that makes, even the wording makes sense to us is because of our (laughs) senses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I am, I like, I love the middle sized stuff. So I, I, it's, it's really hard for me to like get interested in quarks and, 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 or like galaxies. It's like, man, I like, I'm in love with the middle sized stuff. And, um and and so i'm like so i'm i'm feeling called into and i don't know how yet this is this is going to play out but like how can we create institutions that are going to help people live better with middle-sized stuff and i and i think living better does mean f- furthering that subject object differentiation but then in um in Evolution, it's not just differentiation, it's then integration. So it's we transcend and 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 include. So yes, we move past stage three where we see the world through our community, but that doesn't mean we don't need community. Like that's right. it's still luck. super important. Or we move past stage four, but that doesn't mean that we don't need values and frameworks and
0: because again, good luck if you don't. <laughs> right. So the thing that comes up for me is it feels like the holy grail, at least for me, is that the way to bring this to the greatest number of people is to create games. And what I mean by that is like an institution is a architecture of information that it still feels like it has to compel. Like you have to come into it and it's like, it's not, it's not self-organizing. In the way where playing chess mm-hmm. inherent in the mechanics of playing chess is it teaches you how to think like a chess player, and the oldest board game that's ever been created is go. and the essence of go is it teaches you how to accumulate landmass. Like if you actually look at the mechanics of the game, it teaches you to think like a emperor, yeah and that like when you play a really good video game or even a board game or a card game, there's a philosophy about how to be built into how to win the game. And that like institutions seem to have built into their lifespan. They become ossified and they die. Yeah. You know, and like we, we've seen that with every religion, but it's like, I'm trying to figure out how to inspire other people to, like, how do we make it such, and I wish there was some other word than viral, you know? But like, Mm. how do you create a thing that by people playing that game, it spontaneously spreads the good and the true and the beautiful in a way where it doesn't have to be localized in a institution. Like there's the quote from the Bible and it's wherever two or more of me are yeah. gathered, there yeah. I am. And it's like an institution implies only if you gather here, only if you are within this is the thou there.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm, I'm interested in like a, like Jimmy Wheel articulates it well and recapture the rapture like we are at a point in culture where the solution is not the solution if it's not cheap easy to do and self-organizing
1: yeah yeah well i think about the mega churches that i studied and what made me think that okay i i, I could see a secular version of these taking off in some way because what, what I, cause I studied these like an anthropologist, you know, going, I went to like the small groups that went every week. I went to all, I went through the whole like onboarding uh, membership process. And these mega churches are, they, they are somewhat self-organizing. So the pastors would when I would interview them, they're like, yeah, you know you can come to the Sunday stuff or this they they would hold like they, they, they would hold like 10 different services on Saturday and Sunday, all different styles. so you could come to the rock one, you can come to the rap one, you can come to the to the Spanish language one you can come to the Hawaiian themed one, you can come to the one for AA or you know so there's like um all, all uh, but, you know, what you really need to see is our small groups and those are dispersed on the week and they're real, they're, they're really self-organizing and, you know, they meet on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night. And so I would go to these and like... Every single time I would go, and I went to these over the course of a year. So I would see this stuff. People would come and they'd say, hey, did anybody else go to the weekend service? Did anybody see that? And like maybe one person did and like, wow. oh yeah. And because they wouldn't miss that small group. They could miss what's going on on the weekend. And when they went, it was more like a celebration. I'd go for the music, coffee shop, kids like the thing or whatever. But it's like I need to go to my small group. But the small group is organized around this 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 church that that would give them some structure, some material, and you know stuff to do. Uh, but then the church would also have these like you know four four weeks to you know better knowing the psalms or whatever. I I I don't remember. But they would have all all of these workshops and stuff that people could come in and out and uh, different sort you know different marriage therapy stuff and he was like here's here's this whole cultural unit that is filling all of these needs in post suburbia like these this isolated fragmented suburbia i think they're doing it in a really subpar and intellectually dishonest way but they're doing it and so i don't know what the Secular version, you know, would really look like. Yeah. But I think that it would have a lot of the elements that are at fit for service. You know, I, 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 yeah. An interesting thing is, it it feels almost like
0: the culture has a immune response to anyone or any organization that has that type of influence over people. And that the immune response is to like attach the, like, label of cult onto it, and I'm I'm curious from your research and what do you see? Why do you think that we have that immune response to, like, if there was any group that had like a church, but that they didn't have a religion, and people would come there and they would gather and maybe they sung or they did. Breath work, like an ecstatic dance, every exactly, week. Exactly. Exactly. The <laughs> label that it would get is that it would yeah. get cult.
1: So I'm, I'm imagining that it would come there. There would be two different places it would come from. Stage three, social mind would be, oh, they're doing something weird, and it's not my church. Like it's not the way that I grew up, and that's that's weird. And 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 so that just comes from a. Anything's a cult that isn't my church, or yeah, or it's not. If it's not my cult, then it's you know a cult. Um, so That's I a think good way the to stage it. three, <laughs> <laughs> but then I think the stage four is the big problem with stage four is it's really destabilizing. I mean, yeah. it's destabilizing to uh, to like see like oh my god, I have all these apps on my phone and. Um, half of them I don't like. The other half I'm not so sure about. And now I don't know how to run my operating. Like I, I, I don't, I don't know what to, how to live my life now. Yeah. And and so then I think the cult of individualism, like just this isolated individualism, which I, I think you know the whole libertarian thing is just a traumatized. Like I think libertarianism is is like some politicized trauma of just like, of, you know, the isolated individual. And so I think the stage four response is like, oh, there are people who are moving in unison. There are people who are connected. There are people who, who, who speak a common language and are together cult. And so I think it's a stage four and a stage three response. And I, I, and I don't think it's, it's a, it's a huge problem because I think that from the stage three standpoint, people are dissatisfied with with their received traditions. And so I think there are definitely openings for them to come into uh, something like a new secular institution like this. But I think from the stage four, like, Isolated individuals are not happy people. I mean, they're like, they're not living their best lives. And I think if these institutions are structured in the, like, what I love about Fit for Service is that at every step of the way, there is this ethos of, the there's a light inside of you. Like there is there is a a source, a, a inner knowing inside of you. There are no gurus here. There are people who know a lot of stuff and who are skilled. There's like, there's no guru here. And the answer is inside of you. And I think that that ethos, which is a very stage five, I, I, I think as long as the institutions are infused with that, right. then, you know, it, let the haters hate. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. I can feel that um, I learned this uh, by studying Jung's critique of Freud when I was in my early 20s. And that, like, one of the core ideas, like, one of the core traps whenever you start to help a person heal is what's called transference and counter transference. And it's where, as soon as you start to help someone, especially if they've gone through intense trauma, Uh, Their first response to that is that you are the thing that is healing them. And that what the trap that the healer will fall into is they'll start to either unconsciously or consciously believe the hype. That, oh, it's me. I'm the thing that does it. But what the therapist is actually doing is they're modeling the force in you that has the... Unconditional positive regard for your growth. Totally. And that what a good healer does is once they've helped you feel that you that that even exists in the universe at all, they will start to pass it back to you over and over and over again until you realize that it's yours, and then you leave them. One hundred percent. And that like good therapy is like being a good parent, which is you raise them to the point where they can leave you. Yeah. There's With- something heartbreaking about that
1: which is which is why I think therapy and this this subject object movement this personal growth is just one part of it because we can move along and we can heal and we can grow we still need community and transcendence and 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 so I I, I really feel like these these three things are these deep human needs that in modernity in or late modernity, post-industrial society, like we need them. Like I think we are at a historical moment where like we need them. And so I'm, yeah, so I, 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 so that was what my email was about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, if you could paint a wild vision of what you would like to see FFS do or turn into or aspire to be, Based off of everything that you've seen, what do you want to see?
1: Mm. I don't know. I so we talked. I don't now. I don't remember if we mentioned this on uh, on air. Uh, but I liken fit for service to tent revivals, and so in uh, starting really in the late seventeen hundreds, uh, the Protestant Church in well, first in England. Uh, began to there were people insi- inside of it that wanted to experience God directly or like this is boring you know we need something that's alive and these these tent revivals started to pop up i don't think they were tents in england but hmm. it then came over to the us in the 1800s and they were basically they called them revivals because it was about like hey you know you go to your 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 church um And, you know, you learn about all the right things, but the life is not there. Like the spirit isn't there. So you come to the revival and you're like revived by the spirit. And so it was a really organic thing. I mean, there was no, there was no planning. Um, It was just these people who were taking it, um, who were kind of being led by the spirit, I guess. And so I don't know. I mean, what I love is that Fit for Service feels to me like it is it is totally led by the like inner knowing of like what is going to be amazing, what is going to be, what is gonna lead people to bring subject into object here that is gonna allow people to reflect and heal in really important ways, but also build that community and provide these transcendent experiences. And so I feel like it's this organic thing and, and it's more, I'm excited to see <laughs> where it where it goes. I think. I mean, I, I, ideally I do feel like we do need these things in our daily lives. Like it's, it's not enough to have them once a year or four times a year, but it's like, what would it look like if, if you, if you had a community like this, that had these practices, you know, breath work, ecstatic dancing workshops on, you know, cutting edge therapeutic stuff, uh, like, what would it look like if they were in your community and you went to them in the way that people go to church? And that's like, and the thing that megachurch has also figured out is that people don't just come for the community and the transcendence, but there's a lot of practical stuff there as well. And I'm not sure what that would look like, but at least like, you know, can you get a good brunch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can feel that one of the things that I'm always aspiring
0: to try to figure out is how can we enable the people who come to the experiences to like authentically start something where they are, where, where, because one of the keys is like, you have to do the work to be able to hold what people will want to project onto you. And that's the thing that I still don't quite know. Like, how can we teach that in a way where people can go create community where they live and then not become mm. an asshole? Yeah. You know, like just not yeah. become <laughs> a person who, because one of the things that I think is really important is we all have some fucking dark parts of us that are like the ones, like they are the parts that, that are the most kept away. That if we had the power, like Chris Rock has this joke and it's like, Mm. you're only as faithful as your options. And that there's a thing that happens that if you're able to create community, if you have shadows that you have not confronted, they will come out and you will hurt the people who have came to be helped by you. Mm. And I don't yet know how we can uh, empower people to be able to do that at... Uh, In a way that scales because like Aubrey had to go live the the most extravagant life to find that he could feed those things without having to have the power that comes with having something like FFS. And it's really been an incredible opportunity for me to be able to like learn how to do that without having to hold the reins of the whole thing. And, like, one of the things that I do see is there are people who come through who see the power, like, see how potent it is. And then they go try to start something maybe before they are ready and mm. they slip and they do things that's like, uh, that's not good for what it is that we're trying to do here. Yep. And that is a slippery part of this thing, which is people are so malnourished of community. That once they start to get it, if the person who orchestrated it hasn't worked through their shit, oh, yeah, they can abuse the type of, um, are you familiar with the idea of the golden shadow? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: so yeah. it's where we project our higher parts onto someone else because yep. we don't think that we could possibly have those, but that whatever you project onto a guru or whatever people project onto Aubrey or me or whoever else, Those are their higher parts that what a good space
1: holder will do is they'll be like, no fam, not me. It's you. Yeah. And so what is going to be the key to scale this? And I, I don't know, but I know, but I have an assumption that two pieces are a community that if people do go out and want to start stuff like I'm, now I, I, I was in, I've, I've been inspired for several years to start a dance thing to like conscious dance, ex, um, ecstatic dance, and then after fit for Service, like fuck it I'm just like I'm gonna push it as hard as I can, but it's like I need people around me and I like I I I cannot do this on my own, um, and so a like a, a clear community of people who are going to. Reveal what might be your subject, and then make it object for you. Like, hey, you know what? Um, uh, you're not seeing this. You're you're pushing this too hard. You're not pushing this hard enough. So, yeah, I think the community, and then I think the personal growth. Uh, I, um, I think that somebody who's who's at stage four or stage five is going to do a lot better at this because at least they're aware now that yeah this is all apps on my phone like i might not be seeing things clearly right now i might be seeing them you know i i i'm i might not know all the apps on my phone right now and in fact it's 100% the case that we don't 100%. know all the, yeah. yeah so so to have that realization and like always like dude can you look at my phone and just see like are we seeing the same thing here um and yeah so if a person isn't doing that, then they're in trouble. So yeah, community and personal growth, which I think is a part of fit for service. So I imagine there's some like rogue actors, but I think you guys are like doing the work.
0: And the thing that's cool is that we have no idea what it is. You know, like that's what what makes me so stoked
1: about it. It feels so like, yeah. Um, I, I think I heard this on a recent podcast, but I first heard this phrase when I was interviewing a pastor for my dissertation. And he said, like, I, I, I write or what I was taught to do is write like 80% of the sermon. Or I don't know. I can't forget the percentage and then leave the other 20% for the angels, you know? And, 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 so I feel like, like that's, that's definitely there. You guys have it planned. It is so locked down in terms of the actual structure, but then there's that 20% for the angels. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, what's cool is, is like, I had to, like one of my protectors, like, I remember the first time that I did a workshop for FFS and I planned that workshop for like two months and I wrote it out and I like really fretted over it. And like, Aubrey doesn't prepare. And like, it was so triggering to me (laughs) to see how little he would prepare and then how incredible Mm what like what happened would be, but it was
1: because he trusted. He left 100% for the angels. That he could listen. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And now I've gotten to the point where like, I still like to prepare, like maybe like half, Mm -hmm. but it's so much fun as like, if you're on stage for any reason, or if you're holding space for a group for any reason, when you get to the point where you genuinely trust that you can listen in the moment, To what the group is unconsciously asking for, things happen that feel like magic. Like you are surprised by what comes through. And now I've gotten to the point where I measure the quality of any workshop or even podcast or thing that I do on stage or in front of a crowd by how many times I was surprised by what happened. It's like that is a testament that you're trusting. And there's something so exhausting about operating from a place where you don't trust, where you think you have to control the whole thing. And like,
1: oh my God,
0: like whenever Manager I like your
1: parts, just exhausted. Right.
0: Whenever I watch documentaries about cults, there's something about it that's so exhausting. Like, <laughs> oh like my God, the, what Keith
1: Raniere was up to.
0: <laughs> I really would love to know what happened to him as a child, you know, because. Seriously. So I recently watched a documentary on HBO that was about a woman, I forget her name, who was a psychiatrist back, who was popular in the 80s and the 90s. And she would work with big time murderers and she would record her interviews with them. And she would, this is before parts work was really well known, but she would hypnotize them. And then she would do part work on them. And what she found is every single murderer had a fractured part that was the exile that was the kid that got each of these stories the level of abuse that the children
1: went through yes schwartz talks about this as well
0: was fucking
1: like heartbreaking and then
0: because the abuse was so dramatic like Content warning. I'm about to give an example. Um, There was a mass murderer who the way he would murder his victims is they were all women. He would strangle them and then he would eat their genitals. And once this woman did the hypnotism and started to work with his parts, that he got violently abused by his mom over and over again where she would bite his dick. And that that type of, yeah. what her, what she was claiming, that made her the pariah of her time is that no one is born evil. Yeah,
1: Schwartz writes about this as well. I don't know if he writes about this in No Bad Parts, but he worked in uh, with violent sex offenders and found the same thing where it, it was basically a. Protector part that wanted to use the same type of energy that hurt the exile, and then use that same type of energy to get back the power that they lost.
0: What was really interesting is I I watched um, the uh, Teal Swan documentary on Hulu called the The Deep End, and she has a story of abuse that is one of the most horrific ones that I've ever heard, like what she went through. And one of the, and she, she actually allowed the documentarians to record some snippets of her journals that she wrote from that age. Her abuse started at six. And one of the things that she wrote when she was, uh, when she was a teenager was, um, I could feel that he was trying to create at least one other human who understood what he went through. And that hit me like a fucking brick that maybe the like unconscious drive is still fundamentally that they're trying to connect. connect, But it's so twisted and so warped that the only way that that urge can feel a connection is to create that trauma
1: in some other human. So I had a therapeutic... Mushroom journey a couple of years ago, and the realization that just came through was like, Whoa, European society is this long traumatized, yeah. um, uh, colonized. So, like, we like. Just to to learn about the history of Roman conquest, one hundred percent. And so it's like, oh, my ancestors! Like there was a time when they were pagan, and they got that shit beat out of them, and then I'm it got passed goosebumps. down and passed down and passed 100%. down. One
0: hundred percent. So, this is a uh, this is a track I've been walking for about a year and a half, and I think it's going to turn into a book one day, and it's, it's going to be a big one. But it's um, the working title is "Twilight of a Titan." And the like mythological frame of it is, there is this massive Titan that is now old and sick and is about to die. And all of his children are all of the people that that Titan has conquested. Mm. And that they're like the oldest, like the oldest children were the ones that got colonized first. But they've been so used to being colonized that the most recent children are, are it's like we're all around a table in the rib cage of this Titan screaming about who dad hurt the most. Yeah. And that the most recent, like groups that have been completely traumatized by this king are the ones that now have the internet and they're able to advocate for their outrage. Mm. And it's almost like Mm. the older brothers and sisters are triggered that they're even yelling out
1: because they never
0: got the opportunity to yell out. And like, for me, I'm mostly Irish and that, um, like, In the current game that's happening in the ribcage of this king, I am I am the king. Like I I get accused, like I am the king. Like if you're a white male, like you get accused, like you are the king. I went to a show by a musician a couple of months ago where she, in between all of her songs, were like Irish (laughs) folk songs. And in between each song, you were at this yes, event, yes, yes and she would share stories, beautiful. that It's some of the most anger I've ever felt in my adult life, because mm-hmm. it was the first time that I was connecting to my Irish heritage has been so thoroughly destroyed yeah. that. I, for 31 years, didn't even recognize that it was torn away from me. Yeah. That all of the religious songs, all of the pagan ways of life, the Romans came through and they fucking murdered that shit.
1: Totally.
0: And that almost everyone who's, in, who's on this land in the U.S., we are the children of tribes that have been conquested. that's right and that there's this like the romans invented the crucifixion mm. if you want to like mm-hmm. the the generations of trauma that have been invented from this empire consciousness this yeah, titan yes yes we are all the children of it yeah And one of the things that I'm feeling into is like the alchemy of our time on some level is to recognize this full frame so that anyone who feels called to it can start to try to bring some coherence to the screaming that's happening at the table in the rib cage of this titan. Mm. Because like like the white man or whatever you want to call it, they're triggered by being accused. And I think because on some deep level, they know too that they've been pillaged, but they never spoke out about it. They didn't I mean, have it's, the opportunity. It's, it's deep
1: though. I mean, it's, it's, it's deep. Like on this, on this mushroom trip, the way that it came out was uh, some, some sort of like, I, I was listening on headphones and there was like a tribal type beat. And I started to move to it and I could recognize the places in my body that were, that were like kind of resisting, but then I could recognize the other parts that were like really just tap, tapped in. And it was like, oh, wait, 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 See, like tribal beats are like humanity's heritage, everyone. You know yeah. And if you don't have it, white person in the suit, is because your ancestors were colonized and, and it got beaten out of you. And, and now that sickness is in your bones and that's why you can't move. And that's why you can't dance. And so I, yeah, I feel like it's so deep, but again, I mean, that what happened in that journey for me was just that classic subject object thing of like, Oh, here's another app (laughs) now that is that I can see on my phone. And there are a lot of, uh, I think, uh, uh, tight corporate white dudes who are starting to see apps on their phone. Yeah. (laughs) But, But so that personal growth piece is just one of the issues. Like, all right, so I'm a white guy. I went down to Costa Rica. Now I see some extra apps on my phone. What do I do now? Right? And so, like, that's where these embedded communities come come in all right now you need community you need transcendence you need this community that is that that is going to also understand that you've only just started on the journey of your of your app uh, consciousness yeah so um the question i want
0: to ask to bring this to a close i think this is one of my favorite questions to ask people is um it's not about what the historically correct answer is, but just the first one that comes from your heart. What was your favorite story as a
1: kid? Either a movie or a book yeah. or a TV show? Okay, so because I listen to your podcast, I <laughs> know this question and I've thought about it for, for a, a while now. <clears throat> and so like really digging like, oh no, that, that wasn't the first. So the first thing I can remember is being... Was going to the library with my mom, and she, uh, she, she got me these books, and I just fell in love with the series. It was of these kids who were in superhero costumes, but the costumes were like slightly too big for them. But it was like Batman and Superman, Spider Man, but they were kids, and they, I, I don't remember even if they had superpowers, but they might have, but they, they. I, I just remember falling in love with this idea of like, here are kids in these superhero costumes. And, and so that's, that's one. And so as that came to mind, I was like, okay, what, what's, what's the theme? Is there anything else? And so then I had this flashback. So this is going to, I don't know if anybody's going to r- remember this. I'm 46 <laughs> years old, but there was this show on TV when I was probably four years old, because I'm thinking of the house that we were in at the time. Probably four. And it was called Manimal. Are you familiar with Manimal? No. So it was this, all I remember as a four-year-old is this TV show where this man had the ability to turn into an animal. <laughs> so he was Manimal. And it was like primetime TV. It wasn't a cartoon. And and so they, you know, through the special effects of 19, 1980, like he was, and I, like, I was obsessed with this show. Like, oh, here's this guy who can turn into an animal. And then the, final one at that same age same house i remember i was terrified by this show called buck rogers and there was this episode where he was traveling the galaxy and landed on a planet and um and he caught some virus that turned him into like a a some beast and that freaked me out and, and i'm so there's some theme of like transformation there that that uh, those are the stories that got me when I was four. Yeah. The thing that's
0: interesting is it feels like, um, I read this in, I forget which book, but it was a Jungian oriented book. And they were talking about how, uh, before the agricultural revolution, the mythologies and the gods of the dominant cultures on the planet were, uh, either half human, half animal. Mm. Or human in a way where they were in direct relation to animals, or they were actually just fully animals. And then once the agricultural revolution came, Mm. our myths started to transform. And you can see it in Hercules. All 12 trials of Hercules have to do with him dominating and killing animals. And then you get things like Moses, you know, and then you get things like uh, um, Gilgamesh, which is all about killing and dominating the animals. And the idea is that like, as soon as we started to enslave animals to help make them do our work, it's almost like we created this double bind in our own consciousness where we had to remove ourselves from the animal that we are. And that, that like cut between the human and the animal in us Mm. was made most like the thing that completely cut it apart was Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. And that there's this like primal fear in us that will be overwhelmed by the animal that mm-hmm. is us. And I think because we're traumatized, all of us, that our only connection to the animal is when it's triggered, that we don't trust it. But that as you start to heal, you can recognize that like ecstasy not the drug, but the feeling is something that is so primal and it's terrifying. It completely overwhelms the mind and bliss. Transcendence. Transcendence. Rapture. These are also aspects of the animal body in us. And because we have a cultural framework where the... Dominating view of what it means to be human is that if humans are not tamed, we're Mm -hmm. vicious beasts that murder and rape and pillage and whatever else. And there is like what I love about IFS is that it embodies a different worldview, which is no, a traumatized animal acts that way. That's right. A untraumatized animal. Cooperates, plays, is curious, explores, builds, helps, laughs, and cries when it needs to cry. And, you know, hallelujah to the potential that more people will be able to feel that in this lifetime. Mm, The earth needs it. Thank you so much for coming on. This was (laughs) awesome. Thank you. There will be more. Thank you, Graham. (laughs) Shout out to Graham. All right, y'all. Love you guys so much and thank you.